Paul that we started looking in Matthew chapter 22, and I began with the thoughts of the fact that Jesus is able to bring people together. In a positive sense, we looked at the fact that Jesus was able to bring a zealot and a tax collector together and make it work with the twelve apostles. You remember we talked about the fact that in an ultimate sense, Jesus is able to take sinners and bring them back together with God in reconciliation. We talked about that for a moment. Well, that was a very positive way at looking at how Jesus can bring people together. Then we examined how Jesus could actually bring people together in a negative sense. You remember Pilate and Herod became friends the very day that Jesus was crucified. And in that context, in Matthew chapter 22, we looked at the fact that Jesus was able to bring together disciples of the Pharisees and Herodians. Two groups of people that normally would have been very antagonistic were brought together because of their hatred for Jesus. And so in a negative sense, Jesus was able to bring people together as well. Tonight, as we begin, I want you to think about now Jesus dividing people. Jesus actually taking people and taking them and breaking them apart, separating them in their relationships. Can you imagine the looks on people's faces when Jesus said these words recorded for us in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Can you imagine looking on the faces of people who were listening to what Jesus would say, and if you grew up in a home like mine, well, hate, that just wasn't a word that we were allowed to use very often. We just didn't hate too many things. And that was not a a word that was very popular, and in fact, it could get your mouth washed out at times. But here Jesus says, if you don't hate yourself, if you don't hate your own life, if you don't hate your children, if you don't hate your husband or your wife, you cannot be my disciple. Now clearly, it doesn't take a lot of thinking to understand what exactly Jesus is saying. He's simply saying that you need to love them less and appreciate those relationships less than your relationship with me. And if you don't love your life less than you love me, then you're not worthy of being one of my disciples. You cannot be, he says, one of my disciples. How about this one? Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 and 36, where we have recorded for us again Jesus saying, I have come to set a man against his father, and I've come to set a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies, he said, will be those of his very household. His enemies are going to be in his very home. Now think about that. Well, actually, for a lot of us, it doesn't take a lot for us to think about. For a lot of us, this is what we know. For a lot of us in our homes and in our families, maybe within our homes or maybe not far outside of our homes, there is division when it comes to matters of religion. There is division when it comes to Jesus and choosing to follow Him or choosing not to follow Him. I have it in my family. You have it in yours Probably. I won't say it's a blanket statement, but I would say in a group of, say, a hundred people gathered here tonight, there's a good chance that a great percentage of us have some kind of division in our homes, within our families. Jesus said, this is the way it was going to be. He said, I know that this is how it's going to be. 
Now, I want you to think about joy in obedience in the, in the New Testament. You know, it's not all doom and gloom in the New Testament. I like to think about Cornelius, for example. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 24, you remember he is told to send to Joppa and get Simon and bring him there. And you remember that while those men of Cornelius are going to get Peter and bring him, that Cornelius is making plans. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 10 and verse 24 that he called together his close relatives and friends. And so when Peter gets there, Cornelius, he's got, it seems like, a household of people that are all excited and ready to hear the gospel. They're all excited and ready to hear about Jesus. And as you continue through that chapter, remember the Holy Spirit falls upon those Gentiles in that home, and they begin to speak in tongues as the apostles did in Acts chapter 2. And you remember that this was a sign to the Jews that God now has accepted the Gentiles and is offering them salvation. But there's not an indication in Acts chapter 10 that that Peter then commanding all of those present to be baptized, there's not an indication that anybody said no. The indication is that all of those close relatives and friends, all those who were there, did it. They obeyed the gospel. They became Christians. Can you imagine the joy in that family? Can you imagine the joy that was present in that home that day? In Acts chapter 16, we could look at Lydia, the same basically is said of her. But in chapter 16, in verse 34, it is said of the Philippian jailer. Remember, Paul and Silas were imprisoned, and the earthquake happened, and the jailer's ready to kill himself, and Paul calls out for him not to hurt himself, and he grabs a light, and he runs in, and he falls at the feet of Paul and Silas and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, You need to believe in Jesus. And the Bible then tells us that he, the jailer took them back to his house and he washed their stripes and they taught him the gospel. And the Bible says that he obeyed the gospel. He was baptized, he and all his household. Jesus has a way of bringing people together. There's joy when, when obedience takes place, when people become Christians, when, when homes are solidified. By, and made up of those who have obeyed the gospel. Many of us sitting here tonight, we could rejoice when we became Christians and there was joy in our families. There was joy in our homes. I remember I was baptized at, at Bible camp as a teenager and I remember it was sometime around 11 o'clock that night when I would have made a phone call home. And I knew that when I made that phone call that I was going to wake somebody up I knew that they were going to be in bed and I was going to make this phone call and I was going to wake them up. Now, when you get a phone call and it wakes you up at night, you know it's probably good news or very likely could be bad news. And I remember my dad answering the phone and the first thing was he was thinking, uh-oh, what's happened? But when I told him what I had done, I said, Dad, I was baptized tonight. You could just sense the overjoy the excitement and the voice on the other end of the line. I knew that that was the reaction I was going to get. When I made the phone call, I knew the joy that was about to be brought to the one who answered the phone. But I also know that that's not true for all of you. I know that there are some sitting here tonight when, when you obeyed the gospel, maybe you didn't make a phone call home because you knew the reaction that you were going to get. 
And I've had many friends and brothers and sisters in Christ over the years who, who made that phone call home and they got a very different reaction than the one I did. I know and so do you, some who made that phone call home and, and the voice on the other end said, don't you worry about coming home then. Don't even bother coming home. I know those who have been completely disowned by their families for choosing to obey the gospel. And so I want tonight for you to think with me about the 3,000 in Acts chapter 2. I want you to consider with me the setting of where this was and what was taking place. I want you to consider with me that we are in the heart of Judaism. We are in the city of Jerusalem. We are in the very temple of God when these things are taking place. And I want you to consider with me the cost that 3,000 souls counted that day. I want you to consider with me that this wasn't a decision that they took lightly. That when they made the decision to become a Christian, they, it turned their world upside down. I'm telling you, in a setting like this with about 100 people present, there are the majority, I would say, at least I would say the majority of us who know division within a family. What do you think the numbers were out of 3,000? What's the percentage of a mother who looked at her children, grown children of accountable age, and said, you choose what you're going to do, but I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus? Or a wife who looked into the face of her husband and said, honey... I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to choose to become a Christian. I'm going to be a part of this. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. I wonder, out of 3,000, how many families saw some kind of division that day? I'm not in the business of adding to what the Bible doesn't tell us. But I can use a mind, can't you, and just say that out of 3,000, that scenario is going to play itself out. We would imagine where some would be torn. Some families are going to be divided. And so this is my question. This is really my question. What did they hear that day that would make them count that cost? What is it about Jesus that would cause one to say, you know what, I don't know what all the the consequences are going to be of this decision, but I've got to make this decision. I must be with Jesus. I wonder what they heard that day that would make them think, I want to embrace Jesus. As we had read for us just a moment ago by Brother Wolf in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, the Bible tells us there that that they gladly received His Word that day and about 3,000 souls were added to them. That, That carries with it the idea of welcoming it, of embracing it. They gladly received it. They took a hold of that message and they just wrapped their arms around it and their lives around it and they said, I am going to be with Jesus. What did Peter say that day that would make them make this decision? No matter what the cost, I am going to be a disciple of Jesus. Tonight, I want to look at this context of Acts chapter 2 From that standpoint, and you can look at it, and that's the great thing about the Bible, you can look at a context from many different angles, but tonight, that's the angle I want you to consider it. What did he say about Jesus? There are four things that I want you to see that he said about Jesus. 
How did he convince these folks to give up Judaism, to give up their lifestyles, to give up everything they knew and become a disciple of Jesus? What did he say to convince them? Number one, he was able to convince them that Jesus was a man from God. Jesus wasn't just a man. Jesus was God in the flesh. This is one of the great points that he makes. You see, if I'm going to make a choice to become a disciple of Jesus, I need evidence. I need to know something about him. And so you back up to verse number 22, and Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now break that verse down for a minute. What's Peter saying about Jesus? Well, the first thing he says is, this is a man who was attested to you by God. Now, that's not a word we use every day. But literally, what he's saying is, this is a man that God showed you was from me. The idea there is, is look, God, God took him, his son, and he brought him down here, and he showed you through what Jesus did that he was from me. I showed you that he's from God. How did he do it? Wonders, signs, and miracles. And I love what Peter says. Here he has this great multitude of people. I don't know how big the multitude is. I know it's greater than 3,000, but I don't know how big it is, and neither do you. But we're talking about a great, great number of people. And he says to these people who are gathered there in the, in the temple area, he says, Jesus did these miracles in your midst. And he uses the expression, as you yourselves also know. Look. Jesus didn't do these miracles in a corner. He wasn't hiding in a back alley healing people, was He? He was out in the open with it. He was displaying His power. He was displaying the miracles. I'm telling you, you didn't see everybody doing this every day. Even Simon the sorcerer was pretty amazed because he knew he couldn't do it. He was just duping people. There are good magicians out there. But there's nothing of what Jesus was able to do. You think about all the myriad of miracles the Bible tells us Jesus performed. You think about the fact that they brought Him lame people who couldn't walk. People who had been lame since birth, and, and He healed them and they just leaped up and ran. You talk about people that had deafness, or weren't able to speak, or they were blind, or they had withered hands, or they couldn't use other parts of their body, and Jesus was able to heal them all. You think about the number of demons or evil spirits that Jesus was able to cast out with just a word. Even the demons believed Him and obeyed. I mean, they, they obeyed Him. He, he had control over them. Then you think about Peter, the one talking, and you think about the miracles that Peter saw Jesus perform. He healed his mother-in-law, remember? And you remember that Peter was there when Jesus walked on the water. Nobody does this. Jesus does. Jesus walked on the water. You remember Peter was there when Jesus spoke and a, and a storm was calm. You remember Peter was there when, when the boat was on one side of the sea and, and the, he walked out to the boat and, and then immediately the boat was on the other side. You remember Peter was there when that happened. He says, Jesus did these wonders and signs in your midst. You know about these miracles. You know what he was able to do. But hold your finger in Acts 2 and just go to one of my favorites. Isn't it yours? In John chapter 11. I mean, you talk about miracles and then there are miracles. I mean, miracles are miracles. They're, they go against nature. No one can do it. God can do it. And Jesus was proving himself to be God. 
In John chapter 11, remember, I mean, you can picture it in your mind, right? A man has been dead for four days. He's in a tomb. And the Bible says in verse 38 that Jesus was still groaning within himself. Remember verse 35 tells us that Jesus wept on this occasion when Lazarus died. And he was there and all the the women and the people with him were grieving. The Bible says Jesus was still groaning in his spirit. He arrived at the tomb. And he commanded them to roll the, the, the stone away. And Martha says, Lord... Listen, he's been in there for four days. He's been dead for four days. There's going to be a stench. And Jesus says, I told you, roll it away. He's standing outside, calls into the tomb. And he says, Lazarus, verse 43, come forth. And this is what the Bible says in verse 44. And he who had died, underline it, he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. (laughs) You can see it, right? Loose him and let him go. But this is what the Bible says next. That many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and they said, What shall we do? Listen, for this man works many signs. They had seen other signs besides this one, hadn't they? Uh, to me, you know, which one trumps them all? I don't know. A miracle is a miracle. But bringing a man out of the grave who had been in there for four days, that's pretty remarkable. And no one could deny it. You go to chapter 12, and the Bible has this to say in verse number 9. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, that's Jesus, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Listen, you're there on the day of Pentecost. Tell me, I need evidence. How do I know that Jesus is from God? Miracles. That's what Peter says. You look at the signs and the wonders and the miracles, and they prove that Jesus is from God. No one can do what Jesus did. And Peter says, He did it in your midst. You watched Him do it. You saw Him do it. Now use your mind. I'm presenting you with evidence. You need to be a disciple of His. That's what Peter's doing. I'm giving you the evidence. This is a man attested by God. He was shown to be from God. That's why John would say at the end of his gospel account in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that truly Jesus did many other signs which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing you may have life in His name. That's exactly what Peter's doing. He's offering evidence for their believing that Jesus was a man from God. Remember the miracles, he says. Number two, look at the Scriptures, won't you? You know, the Scriptures offer the evidence that you need to know that that Jesus was from God. Why would I want to give up being a Jew? Why would I want to give up livelihood? Why would I want to cause a split in family, perhaps? Ah, Because the Scriptures told about this one. The Scriptures told about Jesus. Verse 25, For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, 
For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Peter quotes Scripture. He goes back and quotes from Psalm chapter 16. And more than that, he quotes from the Jews' hero, King David, the beloved and revered. He says, you know, David was talking about not himself, but someone else. He was talking about someone else who was to come after him. Listen to me, the Scriptures are evidence. The evidence that we need to know that Jesus is the Christ that we would want to hitch ourselves to His wagon, so to speak, that we would want to be a disciple of His. Look at what the Scriptures have to say concerning Jesus. The Old Testament bears witness that Jesus was the one to come and to deliver the people from their sin. You remember in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but if you recall, Jesus walks into a synagogue on the Sabbath And he is handed a book uh, to read from. And he reads from the book of Isaiah. And it's concerning the Messiah, the one who was to come. And he closes the book. After reading it, he hands it back to the attendant. And he's got everybody's attention. They're all looking at him. And what does he say? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's he saying? I am the one that Isaiah was talking about. The one that was told was coming, it's me. Well, they didn't like that, but it was true. He said, you look at the Scriptures. This is the evidence that you need to know that I do, in fact, come from God. I think that Peter really greatly mirrors exactly what Jesus had said in many ways. Over in John chapter 5, in verse 39, a lot of the same witness that that Jesus talks about, Peter now talks about in Acts chapter 2, But notice what Jesus says in John chapter 5 and verse 39 about the Scriptures. He says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of Me. Jesus says, Everything the Old Testament says concerning the One who was to come from God, I have fulfilled. I am going to fulfill. Listen to me. All I'm saying is this. An honest heart when you present evidence of who Jesus is, will have no choice but to reach the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The Scriptures confirm it. Jesus fulfilled everything that the Scriptures had to say. I love this one, don't you? If you drop down again, or go back up, I guess, a little bit in Acts chapter 2 to verse number 23, here is your third piece of evidence of Jesus being the Christ and our needing to be one of His disciples. In Acts 2 and verse 23, Peter says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, you crucified and put to death, listen, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held by it. Jesus was not ever going to stay in that tomb. It wasn't possible for Him to stay tied to the tomb or to stay dead. He was born to raise. He was going to come back to life, but drop down to verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, that's David, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, 
that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which, he says, we are all witnesses. Don't miss this. This is too good of what Peter has to say. He says, you want to know something about David? You're beloved, you're revered, he's your king, he's your guy. He's still in that tomb. His body died and it stayed in that tomb. But that is not the case with Jesus. See, you don't want to be a Davidite. You don't want to be a follower of David. You want to be a Christian. You want to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. Jesus was raised from the dead. Pay attention, because notice, I think, one of the greatest pieces of evidence for who, how we know that we need to be a disciple of Jesus. How do we know that Jesus came from God? It's the very preaching by the apostles, I think, that offers some of the greatest proof for the resurrection of Jesus. Now think about this. The temple is in what city? Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified right outside what city? Jerusalem. All right, he, he is put to death right outside the city of Jerusalem. I mean, they are almost literally within the shadow of the place where Jesus was crucified. What did, the, what did those apostles do after Jesus was arrested and after he was put to death? What, what did they do? They went and hid. That's what they did. A lot of them went and hid. They, they went into a room. And remember when Jesus showed up, the door wasn't open, was it? It was closed. Why? They don't want anybody to find them. They don't want anybody else in there. Those are followers of Jesus. And Jesus has been put to death. Now what's going to happen to them? But they see Jesus. He does walk through that door. Literally through the door. But then he eats, doesn't he? You have something to eat? Ghosts? They don't eat. Spirits? They, they don't eat. But Jesus ate. He was proving to them that He was back. He was in the flesh. Hey, Thomas, come over here. Put your finger into the nail print of my hand. Put your hand into my side and realize that this is really me. I am in the flesh. And for 40 days, Jesus was showing Himself to the apostles. They hid after He was crucified. But now that Jesus has ascended, where are they and what are they doing? Now they're way out in the open. They're standing in the temple and they're preaching the resurrection of the Christ. I'm simply asking you to think about that. That if they didn't really know that Jesus was raised, I'm telling you, that's not where they are on Pentecost. And that's not what they're doing. They're not in the temple and openly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. They're gone. They're scattered. They're hiding. They don't want to be found. They're in the shadow of the place where they crucify people. They would have been fearing for their own lives if they didn't know that Jesus was raised. They are not standing in the temple that day and they are not preaching a resurrection from the dead. But Peter says, we are witnesses. Verse 32. We have seen Him. We have been with Him. We know that He is raised. I like these words of Paul, don't you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And they just remind us that this is not done in a bubble. That this isn't done in a back alley somewhere or in secret. 
This is speaking of of Jesus' death and resurrection where Paul says in verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried. He was buried. He died and He was buried. But He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. And after that He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain alive, even though some of them have fallen asleep. Some of them have died. And after that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. Telling you, the evidence is too compelling. The evidence is too strong. Jesus was a man sent from God. The miracles prove it. Jesus was a man sent from God. The scriptures prove it. He fulfilled all of them. Jesus was a man sent from God. God raised him from the dead. He didn't stay there. This is the evidence that they needed to know that they had to be one of his disciples. And the final thing I want to bring to your attention tonight from Acts chapter 2 is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the evidence that this would have been of Jesus truly being from God and their need to be one of his disciples. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. Peter says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, He poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, that is, God said to the Son, if you want to think about it that way, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Catch it? Having now been exalted to the right hand of God, He has now poured out the Spirit which you now see and hear. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit was evidence that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. Jesus came out of the tomb and now has ascended up to the right hand of God. And Peter says... You know what's going on today? All of this is just more evidence that that's exactly what's taking place. Now, I don't have it on the screen, but do me a favor, would you? A couple pages back in your New Testament to John chapter 16, and will you just remember the promise that Jesus made? You remember in John chapter 16, they're in the upper room, and and you remember that Jesus knows that He's about to be crucified. The disciples don't, but but He knows, and and they're kind of filled with a little bit of sorrow because something might be up. but, But notice in John chapter 16... This is what the Bible says in verse number 7. Jesus is speaking and He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, catch it, I will send Him to you. I will send Him to you. If I go away, I will send Him to you. That's what Jesus says. And you continue through that context, and and, and Jesus says, this is what's going to happen when I send the Holy Spirit to you. Now, you go over to Acts, and and you know the context, right? You know what's going on in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. You know that the apostles are there in that upper room, and and this great sound of a mighty rushing wind comes in, and, and you remember that the Holy Spirit gives them utterance. They're able to speak in languages which they've never learned. Verse number 4. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In verse number 6, 
And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. They all hear it. And the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own what? Language. What were they speaking? Language. What were they speaking? Language of those represented that day. It wasn't unknown, was it? No, it was known. And that's what caused such great confusion. How is it that these Galileans are speaking my language? I know that they don't know my language. How is it that they're speaking and I can understand them? So the first thing Peter does is say, this is exactly what the Holy Spirit, or what Joel prophesied was going to take place when the Holy Spirit was poured out. When was the Holy Spirit to be poured out? When Jesus ascended on high. Jesus would send the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you put all of that together, and what do we know? We know that Jesus has ascended on high, and He poured out the Spirit. Peter says, this is exactly, exactly the way that God said it was going to come to play itself out. And so as I begin to relax and bring this to a close, I want you to notice that at the end of that prophecy of Joel in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, that the coming of the Holy Spirit is directly connected to salvation. You remember there in verse number 21, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was directly connected to the salvation of man. So there is a conclusion. Therefore, that's what Peter says. Therefore, in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus the one that you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so you're a Jew that day, and you've heard this sermon. And by the way, if you look at verse number 40, this is just kind of a snapshot of the sermon. And there Luke says, Peter said a lot of other things, but Theophilus, this gives you a snapshot of what Peter had to say that day. And this is fresh. I mean, you're 50 days removed. You're 50 days removed from Passover and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You're 50 days removed and and you know all of this that that is going on. And it's all the talk of Jerusalem. This is all anybody's been able to focus on and think about. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And you look at the evidence, and you use your brain, that good brain that God gave you, and you remember the miracles that you watched Him perform, and the ones that you heard directly about. And and you yourself have studied the Scriptures, and you know what the Bible teaches, you know what the Old Testament Scriptures were doing, and pointing to the one that was to come. And you use your reasoning skills and you know, you know that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. You know that He was raised. And you're there that day and you've heard that great sound of mighty rushing wind and you're watching 12 uneducated, untrained men speak in your language that you know they've never learned. 
What do you do? What do you do? 3,000 honest hearts were convicted. They weighed the evidence. And they said, I don't know what the consequences are going to be, but I know I have to follow Him. I have to obey Him. I know that my salvation is tied directly to Him. He died for me. I put Him to death. Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And 3,000 who 50 days or so prior may have been shouting for His death, crucify Him, crucify Him, we're now shouting for Him to save. Do you see it? Can you hear it? Why didn't they all respond? I don't know. But I know that 3,000 were honest with themselves. They were honest with what was presented. And they cried out for His salvation. And that day, no matter the consequences of their decision, they were rejoicing in their salvation offered by Him. We need to be honest with the evidence, my friend. We need to be honest with the evidence that the Bible presents for who Jesus is. And maybe tonight we're in a room that is, is filled to the brim, I don't know, with souls that aren't yet accountable and souls that have given themselves to the Lord. And maybe it is true tonight that you're a Christian. How are you doing? Are you still weighing the evidence? Or you have allowed Satan perhaps to come in and put a hole in your bucket. Tonight, if you're not following Jesus as you should and you need to respond, the Lord's invitation is extended to you. Be honest with the evidence, won't you? And know that, that you can still be right with God, that Jesus has provided you with salvation. Rejoice in that. Follow Him closely. Tonight, maybe as a Christian, you, you have something amiss in your life and you need to respond and you need to ask for the prayers of your brethren. Maybe there's just something in your life that you need to ask the prayers for from your brethren. We want to help you any way that we can. But tonight, if you're not a Christian, the same plan that saved then is the same plan that saves now. There's no changing it. They're simply obeying it. Won't you tonight do what you must in order to be saved? Maybe tonight that means giving up your family religion. Maybe tonight that means that, that there are going to be consequences. And maybe it's going to look different. And maybe your family is going to be different. Maybe you have an opportunity to reach out and to teach, but will you weigh the evidence? Will you understand tonight that you're going to stand before God as you, as an individual? And will you subject yourself? Will you become a disciple of Jesus? Will you accept Him on His terms to do what He says you must in order to be saved, loving Him for dying for you and providing you with life? Tonight, if you'll come... 
won't you, while together we stand and while we sing.